More than a third of the murders in the United States go unsolved. More than half the violent crime, almost 60% of the rapes, go unsolved. So you know, there are communities in the United States that are under, are under great security threat, but that threat isn't being evaluated in determining what the national security threat is. Hi, I'm Raihan Salam, and this is the Vice Podcast Show. I'm joined today by Mike German, a fellow at the Brennan Center and author of the 2007 book, How to Think Like a Terrorist. Mike, you've thought very deeply about the way the FBI works, about the way its power works, and also about the idea of threat inflation. So how should we, uh, you know, how should Congress try to tackle this problem? And I think that is one of the problems. I mean, when, when the agency responsible for assessing the threat is the same agency responsible for addressing that threat, you know, obviously their incentive is to, is to make the threat seem much worse than it is. Why is that obvious? I mean, explain that to me. Well, if I say the threat isn't real and extreme, and something bad happens that I didn't anticipate, I look like an idiot. So I have to say everything's a threat. It was interesting right after 9-11 because they were going a lot out to a lot of agencies like the Department of Agriculture and you know, things that you wouldn't think had any counterterrorism issues and saying, you know, what do you think the greatest terrorism threat is? And not surprisingly, they all thought the terrorist threat was to, to what they were doing. You know? right. and, and so you know, obviously, if your job is to identify and address a threat, you're going to be hypervigilant in doing that. It's like the, those summers where uh, the news starts reporting about shark bites in Florida, and all of a sudden it sounds like, wow, every other day there's a shark bite. You know, what, what is this epidemic of sharks attacking people? And then what they always find is actually it's not that there's an increase, it's just that there's an increased perception because of increased reporting. And the increased reporting draws more attention, which then leads to more increased reporting. And you know, if you look over time, there's not really big jumps in, in what's happening. So how would you separate the analysis piece from the enforcement piece? Well, I think you have to have some independence. So, you know, I think Congress has powerful tools and and really should be more aggressive in using them. You know, they have the Congressional Research Service, they have the uh, Government Accountability Office, the, they have the committees that have their own investigative staffs. So they could do a lot of this analysis on their own. You know, unfortunately, they tend to leave that to the agencies to report to them what the threats are. You know, these congressmen are dealing with a lot of issues. There are a lot of threats. I mean, that's what I was saying that, you know, as an FBI agent, I know there are a lot of threats uh, out there. And, you know, are we throwing so much emphasis on this threat, which is actually, you know, a serious threat? Absolutely, I worked terrorism for 12 years. But, you know, the failure to recognize other threats. I mean, one of the things in, in the latest report I wrote before I left the ACLU, that was kind of shocking when I looked into it. More than a third of the murders in the United States go unsolved. More than half the violent crime, almost 60% of the rapes go unsolved. So you know there are communities in the United States that are under, are under great security threat, but that threat isn't being evaluated in determining what the national security threat is. So part of what you're saying is that only by having an independent agency that's doing this analytical work can you actually make trade-offs and choices in a kind of coherent way where you're treating these threats uh, in a kind of comparable kind of way. Right, and, and also in an, a more objective way. 
that if my job isn't to address the threat, it's just to identify it, I don't have any basis for believing this is worse than that. I mean, perfect example, the FBI, uh, beginning in the mid-2000s, about 2005, decided that the number one domestic terrorism threat, not from abroad but internal, was the environmental rights activists. Now, you know, there is certainly serious crime, and I'd even call it terrorism, that has been conducted by people who call themselves environmental rights activists, you know, arsons, things like that, but they've never actually killed anyone. White supremacists and other far-right people like the type that I worked in those two cases actually kill certainly far greater than any other type of group, and yet we don't treat them, the FBI doesn't treat them as the same, and in fact says they're a subordinate concern to environmental rights terrorists. Do you feel optimistic that we as a society are getting a bit smarter and more sophisticated in thinking about uh, the terrorist threat and other security threats, and that we might, um, you know, fulfill some of the goals that uh, that you'd like to see us fulfill. Right. You know, I wasn't surprised when this type of activity happened immediately after 9/11, and there was a, a, a. But I'm kind of surprised the correction hasn't happened more quickly. And I think part of the reason is that we have become accustomed in the United States to having a secret part of our government that we don't really look at and that we're not supposed to look at and we're supposed to just let them do what they do and not ask a lot of questions. You know, that, that national security uh, enterprise is really a post-World War II construction. It's not something that, that Americans generations before grew up with as we did. And I think that secrecy has made it much harder for the public to evaluate what the government is saying about these threats and how it's doing. So, you know, in a, in a large way, the Edward Snowden leaks have finally given the public some ability to, to make their own decisions. And I have great faith in the American people that, that if they get the right information, they can make the right choices and compel their representatives to make the right choices. I mean, one of the things I hear is that you know, a lot of the congressmen who are now complaining about these authorities, even though they granted them, are being hypocritical. But that's actually how democracy works. The people weigh in and their representatives have to respond appropriately. Is it fair to say that the FBI's powers greatly expanded after 9-11 and that they really have continued to be as expansive uh, as they were in those first few years and that we really haven't clipped their wings and haven't actually reduced their authority all that much. A absolutely. I mean, their authority now is greater than it has been at any time since before the Attorney General guidelines were put on them after the COINTELPRO, J. Edgar Hoover era. The public and the Congress, for sure, needs to do a much more aggressive look at what the FBI is doing. You know, I mean, one of the things with the NSA program that Edward Snowden leaked, for some reason we call that an NSA program. <laughs> That's actually an FBI program. You know, the FBI is the one who gets the orders to get the information, but then directs that the information is turned over to the NSA. The NSA does their mashing and dashing through the data and then provides the, the scoops of data they get out to the FBI. So this, the FBI is hip deep in all of these different abuses. You know, we looked at the CIA torture program, you know, there's a 400-page Inspector General report about the FBI's involvement in, in the abuse of detainees. The, 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 Sounds like the FBI is pretty good PR. They have great PR, and, and for good reason. I mean, they do a lot of really incredibly great work, and you know, particularly in the criminal justice side, we all rely on them for, for to keep our communities safe. So I would never say that the FBI isn't a fine organization. It's just like any organization, 
It needs to have strong guidelines so that they stay within the limits, and it needs to have oversight. You know, we all have a room in our house that, uh, that gets dirty, and when guests come over and you clean up the rest of the house, that one you just shut the door and don't let anybody in. <laughs> you know, the same way with our intelligence community. You know, we got a peek at, at the disarray there at 9-11, and everybody was very angry that, that this enterprise was so disorganized. But since then, rather than opening the shades and getting a clean look at what's wrong, we've closed the shades even tighter, thrown money and manpower and, and authority, more authority into that room without looking at seeing how it's actually operating. And whenever there is any sort of intelligence failure, you know, the congressmen love to scream intelligence failure and there's an investigation. And what it always finds is there was available evidence they should have used. So it's not that there's not uh, enough collection. It's that they, they don't manage the information properly. And part of that is because they're collecting too much information. And if they put reasonable uh, filters on what they were collecting, it would help them find the right people rather than make it harder to find people, which is what happens when you just collect so much data you don't know what to do with it. So in the wake of 9-11, one of the big concerns was that the FBI wasn't playing very well with others. Specifically, it wasn't cooperating all that well with the CIA. What was actually going on between those agencies uh, in that period right before uh, the 9-11 terror attacks? Right, and, and there's a lot of misinformation that I think they intentionally put out there to make it seem like uh, they've resolved the problem. But in fact, the FBI was embedded with the CIA counterterrorism unit. But this was all being done on the intelligence, counterintelligence side of the FBI, not the criminal justice side. And there was a, a divide, um, somewhat because of some bureaucratic rules, somewhat because of a lot of misunderstanding within the agency about how those rules were supposed to apply, that, that made it difficult for criminal investigators within the FBI to get the information that was on the intelligence side. And a lot of that was the kind of silly turf fighting. But it wasn't agency to agency. The FBI had the same information the CIA did in those cases. It's just that it didn't pass over to the criminal justice side of the FBI, where it could have because they were actually doing active criminal investigations of related persons because of the coal bombing and the East Africa embassy bombings. So. This idea that there was a legal wall that prevented that is not really true. And the 9-11 Commission actually makes that report. It was a lot of misunderstanding about this thing, they, this bureaucratic rule they called the wall. And in fact, the information, uh, particularly about Khalid al-Midar, who was one of the terrorists who was living in San Diego, could have been given to the criminal investigators working the case because they already had a case. You know, it wasn't that they weren't doing the investigation. You know, there were, there were a lot of problems but it wasn't that the CIA and the FBI weren't talking. It, you know, it was just mismanagement of information and mismanagement of resources. Did the reforms that we put in place after 9-11 actually help with that mismanagement problem? No, actually, I think it made it worse. And if you look at the Fort Hood shooting as an example, uh, William Webster put together a commission to examine that uh, incident to see what Remind mistakes. us of the Fort Hood. So the Fort Hood shooting was uh, an army major, Nadal Hassan, uh, went to, uh, 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 I guess, where they were planning to deploy to Afghanistan and shot a lot of his fellow soldiers. A number of people died. Mm -hmm. It turned out the FBI had actually investigated Nadal Hassan because he had sent some emails to Anwar Alaki, who uh, was on the FBI's radar as 
a potential suspect in Yemen. So the question became, why was this missed? And you know, part of it is unfair. You know, nobody can predict the future. And no matter how good an investigator you are, you can't predict the future. And we shouldn't expect these agencies to, to predict the future in every case. And we shouldn't hold them to that standard. Uh, it, it's not fair, and it, it, I think, distorts the argument. But we should look at these events and see where information could have been used in a, in a better way so that you can create better management of the information rather than just giving them more authority to collect. Um, so in that case, it turned out that part of the problem was uh, that the intercepts were being kept in different databases. So the, the investigation found that the agents investigating Alaki in San Diego only gave a couple of the intercepts to an investigator in DC asking him to investigate Hassan. And in, the, in his investigation, he made a reasonable decision based on what he had in front of him that these questions related to Hassan's study and weren't something that justified a deeper investigation. Uh, there was a, a lot of uh, apparent um, unease with that decision in San Diego, but nobody went to raise alarms through channels. Well, why is that? Because the FBI responds negatively to whistleblowers. So, you know, you have these sort of competing interests within the FBI that make it harder for information to get where it needs to go more reasonably, and, you know, whether having the additional 15 intercepts would have made a difference, nobody can know. But certainly knowing that those 15 intercepts that the FBI had sitting in a computer weren't used in evaluating how deeply we, they had to investigate this individual is, is something that, that I think we need to talk about and, and not necessarily to lay blame unless there's, you know, actually malfeasance, but at least to understand how we build better management structures, but unfortunately that's never part of the conversation. The Webster Commission just suggested that Congress give the FBI more authority. If you already had FBI agents embedded at the CIA and CIA embedded, uh, agents embedded um, at the FBI, uh, what, how have we enhanced cooperation between these agencies? So it's just a matter that before it used to only be CIA agents working with counterintelligence folks at the FBI, now they're also working with law enforcement? Uh, agents as well? There are all sorts of information sharing arrangements now. You know, Joint Terrorism Task Force existed before 9-11. I worked on Joint Terrorism Task Forces in my cases, um, uh, but they've expanded significantly throughout the U United States. There are now state and local intelligence fusion centers that also share the information gathered on the streets of the United States with the intelligence community, actually push it up into federal intelligence databases. So. You know, certainly there is a tremendous amount of information now being spewed about, but whether that's actually helpful to anyone or actually makes it harder because you're dealing with such a fat inbox every time uh, you come to work, uh, nobody has really done that evaluation. It's just this sort of move ahead with these programs without any kind of uh, risk management or cost effectiveness or even effectiveness studies to determine, is, is this really an effective way? I mean, one of the programs is called the Suspicious Activity Reporting Program. So these Suspicious Activity Reporting Programs, you know, on their face sound reasonable. If you see something suspicious, of course, you should report it. But they go on to define what is suspicious. And in these programs, what they say is suspicious is note-taking, drawing diagrams, 
taking photographs or videotapes. So the videotapes here are, are suspicious in and of themselves, and suspicious and related to terrorism. So what that causes is a bit of hysteria and overreporting. So at the ACLU, we did FOIAs and litigation and uncovered about 300 suspicious activity reports, which isn't a lot, so we can't say that this is an example of everything they do, but we found significant evidence that it targets people based on their race or religion. You know, Muslim person buying a large amount of water. Now, you know, when I was doing terrorism work, I, I made some bombs with these guys. Never heard of a bomb you could make with water. You know, a water balloon maybe, but not a bomb. Uh, why that would be suspicious, why that person's information would be collected and put into a database that goes to the state and local fusion center and then is uploaded into FBI databases and databases run by the Director of National Intelligence. Let's say this person later wants to apply for a federal job, but there's this suspicion that was created because he bought water. Mm. You know, how do you ever clear that suspicion? We get a tremendous number of reports of photographers who are out taking photographs of what they want to, they'll be approached by police, told this is suspicious activity, have their information collected, told that they would be reported to federal databases, in one case told we would be put on a terrorist watch list. So it's this incredible waste where, you know, again, there are violent crimes out there, there are murders, there are rapes, there are things for the police to be doing. Spending time on this nonsense is problematic at the initial stage. and using this grant of authority not to, to actually look for real threats, but to harass people they don't like, right? So they go after people that, I don't like the way you look, whether that's because of your race or religion or because you're dressed like a hippie or whatever, it's just this opportunity. So if you go online and, and search for these photographers' rights groups have sprung up, they have videotapes of these encounters and, and they're really quite astonishing, the, the attitude that some of these police officers bring to these interactions that aren't based on anything justifiable. But that, that's not even the worst of it. Then, a week or two later, they actually get visited by an FBI agent or DHS agent who wants to question them again about the activity. And some of these photographers get visited time and time again. So, you know, it's this black hole of resources and the information is uploaded into these databases where who knows how it might affect you and, and whether that might you know, make it difficult for you to get a federal job or, uh, you know, put you on a watch list or, you know, create some other long-standing problem that, like Clark Kerr, you never really know why you're not getting the job. You don't know why you weren't granted this license. You don't know why your security clearance was pulled. And it's because there's this program that collects information for no good purpose. When you joined the FBI, what was the culture of the organization in the sense that what was the perception of what you had to do as an FBI agent to get ahead within the organization? If you wanted to climb the ranks, if you wanted to enter leadership, what were the kind of things you ought to do as an agent to kind of attract positive attention? Right. So, so the FBI leadership is interesting. Um, you can stay an FBI special agent, street investigator your whole career and, and you know, get periodic annual uh, raises so that you actually make a, a very nice living as an agent and you stay an agent your whole career. And in the field offices, those agents with 10, 15, 20 years of experience are really the go-to people for everyone, not just the younger agents, but the supervisors and the special agents They command a lot of respect. Absolutely. Because they really know how, how to investigate the cases, what the rules are, how, you, how to 
play this game. You're kind of like the elite law enforcement agents in the country. I mean, Absolutely. I think that, you know, people, local law enforcement, I mean, everyone looks up to these guys. Absolutely. I mean, not that there aren't very good law enforcers in these other agencies, but, but clearly those uh, uh, brick agents, you called them, uh, were, were the heart of the FBI. So management was a completely separate structure where you only had to have three years of experience to volunteer to go to be a manager. And it's the type of thing where, as a young agent coming up, you know, I, walking into the door, thought I'd like to, you know, rise in the ranks and become somebody important. But as I get started working there, I realized, you know, the, the government gives me a gun and a badge and authority to poke my nose into other people's business and find the bad guys and a car and, you know, a tremendous amount of freedom and you can actually do really good work. And I thought that sounds pretty cool. Trading that for sitting at a desk with an inbox and an outbox and pushing paper from one to the other. And you just have to deal with other people's crises. Right, you exactly. Deal with problems other people created. Right, and, and the, the dangerous thing is there's a hand grenade in that inbox somewhere. You know, there's this stack of paper, and one of the things your agents are asking to do is going to end up to be trouble. And if it gets to the outbox with your initials on it, that's your trouble. And if it goes up and your boss initials it, that doesn't reserve, you know, it's still going to come down so to you. So who's crazy enough to want to be a manager? Right, then? exactly. So, so the type of people who tend to go into that tend to be people who, 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 um, who like the idea of being a boss as opposed to having great experience in law enforcement. Uh, so it, it, you know, and there were great bosses in the FBI. I don't mean to also suggest that there weren't good supervisors. But it just sort of, it was a different kind of mindset where it was more of a climber. So because they were more climbers, they tended to have more of a go along and get along attitude uh, and especially more of a sort of yes man attitude where if their boss told them to do something, they were going to do it whether it was the right thing Got to it. do so or not. So if you're in a position to raise some objection, you know what, I don't like how this is going, even if it's something that the higher ups like right. and are endorsing or trying to push through, you're not actually making friends, you're not actually facilitating that upward mobility by doing that. Right, exactly. You, you know, you're, you're going to be seen as somebody who's, who's hard to manage. What kind of work were you doing in this era? Uh, I did a lot of uh, undercover work, particularly undercover work in domestic terrorist organizations. So it was, you know, part of my education on this was getting involved in the type of activity that had often gotten the FBI in trouble in the past. Was this considered part of the national security work of the FBI, or was this considered part of the law enforcement work? It was considered part of the law enforcement work, and it's an interesting question because, you know, when terrorism became an issue in the 70s and 80s, the FBI didn't really know what to make of it. And, uh, you know, is this a national security threat or is it a criminal threat? And finally decided that they would split the baby. And if it was terrorism uh, that was initiated by a group that was overseas, it would that was considered a national security so like issue. Soviet-backed, Red Army faction, Cuban, right. something like that. Then right, it's, uh, you know, I mean, even if it was Canadian, <laughs> you know, yeah. if, if they originated overseas, they were... I've been warning people about the Canadian threat <laughs> exactly. for years. Yeah. Uh, but if it was domestic group, it was treated as a, a general criminal matter. So when I was working domestic groups, I had to have a criminal predicate to justify all of my investigations, and particularly working undercover, any time you wanted to turn the the case in the direction of particular individuals, you had to have individualized predication to justify that. 
But you had to have hard evidence that they're in fact working on this rather than just the sentiment. Not hard evidence. All you needed was a reasonable suspicion. So you needed articulable facts to support a reasonable suspicion. Now, as I've often said then and now, most agents will get up out of bed pretty suspicious. <laughs> so it's not exactly a hard standard to meet, but it did require some thought. You know, it, the first investigation I worked on undercover was a neo-Nazi investigation. You know, and I thought, they're neo-Nazis, you know, this, that we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, what's the trouble here? Um, but then as I applied the standard, I realized it actually was a very effective investigative technique, that it required me to sit down and say, okay, I met 10 people today. You know, two of them were the subject of my investigation. Four of them gave clear indications or I have some other evidence in, in the investigative files to suggest that they are themselves involved in the criminal activity. But the other four, I don't have anything on them, so I'm not going to waste time with them. I'm going, to, I'm going to turn my investigation in an appropriate manner. And what I found over the course of a year-long investigation is that helped me focus the investigation properly on the right people and leave alone the people who are just expressing themselves. Interesting, because another point of view is that, well, wait a second, these other guys that you met who are, let's say, broadly sympathetic to those goals, it might be useful to have information about them because, you know, who knows? They might be nonviolent now, uh, but, you know, they could get involved in something further down the road. But you found that, that wasn't actually a useful way to think about it. Well, the problem was that led you down a thousand rabbit holes that you might never come out, out of and, and took your time and resources away from people who are actually doing things. And, and it actually also helped protect the civil rights of the people who, who weren't involved. So if you were just expressing yourself, you didn't become the subject of an investigation. And it kind of played out in the trial that I had in a, in a later case against an anti-government militia that uh, at the trial, a number of people who supported the idea of the militia didn't necessarily know these individuals, but you know wanted to show their support, came to the trial, sat through a six-week trial. I was on the stand for six days. <laughs> Ten different defense attorneys cross-examined me. Not exactly pleasant. Um, but one of the supporters of the militia group in the audience came up to me afterwards and said, I want to shake your hand. And I first thought, "That's <laughs> why do you want to do that? Uh, and he said, you know, I sat through the entire trial, and uh, I saw the evidence, and these guys were definitely going to hurt somebody. And you prevented that. And that, in the end, would have been very dangerous for my movement, so I appreciate what you did. So here's the, a supporter of an anti-government militia who is applauding the government for infiltrating that group and, and finding a bad element within it. And that is, to me, a, an example of how counterterrorism really works. Mike, thank you very much for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me.